Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. A Jesuit vocation can mean a lot of things. There are Jesuits in medicine, astronomy, international relief and development, journalism, publishing, and so much more. But perhaps the line of work most often associated with Jesuits is education. I wonder how many of you are products of a Jesuit education. I know I, for one, am. Father Bill Waters is passionate about education, and he's my guest today. Father Waters knows the value an education can have on an individual and on a community. And he spent a good number of years expanding the educational opportunities available to young people by founding schools in the varied and diverse communities in Baltimore, Maryland. Father Waters has been a priest for more than 50 years, and he shares here reflections and stories from the many people he's encountered over that time. His memory for people, their names, their faces, and their stories constantly amazes me. It's one of the reasons he was such a beloved pastor of St. Ignatius Church in downtown Baltimore, transforming the parish from a struggling institution on the verge of closure to the vibrant community it is today. To be honest, I've never seen a priest receive a standing ovation after a Sunday Mass quite so frequently as Father Waters. Don't forget, if you like what you hear on AMDG, tell your friends, subscribe, and leave us a nice comment. All right, Father Bill Waters, welcome to our AMDG podcast. Good to be with you today. Thank you. Great to be with you also, Eric. Thank you. Well, so, you know, you have uh, been a Jesuit a long time. You've been in, in Baltimore a long time, and you've been working in education a long time. And so today we really want to jump in and talk about all those things and, and, and how they're interrelated and how they've shaped your, your life and ministry and work. But first, why don't you tell us, tell the listeners, a little bit about yourself. Your why? Why did you become a Jesuit? Well, I was a student at St. Peter's Prep School in Jersey City, and from 1948 to 1952, and I went to that school primarily because um, I was interested in the Jesuits. I had read about uh, Jesuits when I was in sixth grade, and my cousin, who also went to that school ahead of me said, you'll get a great education if you go to St. Peter's Prep School. So, having read about the Jesuits, and my cousin was encouraging me to do so, uh, I went for four years, and during that time, I reflected on my journey about whether or not God was calling me to be a Jesuit. So, I applied to the society, and eventually entered Wernersville in 1952. Um, and in terms of my journey, I was, of course, four years at Wernersville, took my vows in 1954, left Wernersville in 1956 to go to Shrebok to study philosophy and other uh, pursuits. Where is Shrebok? Shrebok? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. It's up in New York, and it was uh, connected with Fordham University. Okay. And it was a place for Jesuits to do their primarily philosophical studies, but also to pursue their master's degrees at least the beginnings of their master's degrees, uh, those who didn't have MAs. And so um, eventually uh, I left there in 1958, um, sorry, 59, to go to St. Joe's Prep School in Philadelphia where I taught. So that was a very important moment because um, it confirmed for me um, in my three years there the value of Jesuit education for uh, young boys. Uh, to see the transformation uh, I was teaching freshmen and sophomores, and to see the transformation in their minds, in their spirits, their attitudes, their values, uh, and watching them graduate uh, several years later, I said, this is a great educational experience and venture. 
And uh, it confirmed what I had myself gone through in my own four years of Jesuit education. And so um, uh, I was kind of mesmerized by uh, wanting to become a, a permanent Jesuit uh, uh, educator. And uh, I went back to studies. Uh, I studied at Western School of Theology and uh, was ordained by Cardinal Cushing in 1965. Um, and I went to what was called tertianship, a third year of novitiate in 1966 through 67 uh, up at Orisville, New York, the site of the martyrs. And so, uh, and then I was sent to St. Joe's Prep School again, where I taught for more two years and uh, in a special program, a religious education program, myself and Father George Ashenbrenner and Father Joe Foley, we were assigned uh, to be a team to, uh, in the new catechesis. And uh, I found that very exciting. Um, and then I was invited by the provincial to move from Philly down to Baltimore, to Loyola Blakefield. Charm City. Charm City. And <laughs> so it was a breakthrough for me. Uh, I had been to uh, Baltimore before. I had done my practice teaching in the summer of 1959 before going to St. Joe's Prep School for six weeks under Father John Sheridan, a very famous iconic Jesuit teacher. And I was very uh, privileged to work under him. He really was the one who helped me to appreciate, even on a deeper level, what really makes Jesuit education so successful in terms of helping young men, uh, students, to really grasp the values of Jesuit education. So, um, uh, so I was six years at Loyola Blakefield. Uh, I was very involved, not just in the classroom, but also I ran a retreat program on the side every weekend up at Blue Ridge Summit, Pennsylvania, where the Jesuits at that time had a 150-acre um, campus. And uh, we took over one of the houses on that campus. Uh, was called Loyola House. And it was uh, dedicated to uh, weekend retreats for the students at Loyola Blakefield. So that was uh, uh, another great breakthrough for me in terms of uh, the dimension of giving retreats to young men uh, while they were also going for a Jesuit education. This nice. became a, uh, an extension of what it means to uh, have a holistic Jesuit education in so terms of a, a spiritual. Constantly forming people in, in kind of the, the cure personalis, right? You're, exactly. You're encountering people yeah. at important moments in their life. I want to, um, you know, one, one of the things that, that kind of jumps out to me in your, in your story here with these, these dates is, is you're entering the Jesuits right around Vatican II, right? Well, it's a little before Vatican II, but I, I certainly was uh, entering into theology just right. as Vatican II was opening. October 13, 1962, John the 23rd opened Vatican II. I had just one month before that entered Western God School of Theology. And so we were, all those four years, we were studying what was happening in Rome, all the documents coming out of Rome, while we were also studying some... Uh, outdated theology, to be very polite, but uh, it was not current with a lot of what was happening in Rome and the thinking that was going on at Vatican II. So, so as we're talking about kind of your, your career has been, your ministry has been with, with young people at formative moments, this is a formative moment. How did it, how, how did kind of going through your Jesuit formation at the moment of, of Vatican II, how, how did that kind of launch and propel you into the Jesuit you became? Well, of course, uh, our conversations uh, at Weston among the scholastics, the seminarians, we were 
struggling because we felt that a lot of what was being taught in the classroom was not current with what we were reading in terms of the great theologians of the time, Karl Rahner, uh, uh, Jean Danielieu, Jean de Lubac, so many of those great theologians who were at the council and were saying to ourselves and conversing among ourselves, what we're being taught in some of these classes is uh, rather uh, re- retrenchment, not moving forward in terms <laughs> old of... news. Yeah. And so it was an exciting time, uh, really, uh, while we were studying at, uh, uh, at Western College. And uh, we as young Jesuits were saying, we want to create a whole new way of being Jesuits and how we would like to particularly impact uh, the work that we're going to be doing after we're ordained and myself in the world of education. I'd love to bring the quote, the new theology, the new insights to the classroom and beyond. Yeah. And so you've been doing that and, and how, how has that changed? How, um, how, how did you see that new way of, of being a Jesuit um, you know, impact education in, in the late 60s, early 70s, and how have you seen it continue to evolve in, in the classroom and in, you know, with young people? Now, you know, countless classes have kind of gone through your tutelage, right? So how have you seen that play out? Particularly in the area of justice, hmm. social justice, um, a new consciousness, a new awareness, a new sense of uh, the gospel calls us to be concerned, particularly um, in bringing the gospel, the good news to the poor the marginal, those on the edge of life. Um, and of course, while the church was going through Vatican II, the society was also being called to a transformation. And so at our 32nd General Congregation, um, the shibboleth, if you will, became the faith that does justice. Mm-hmm. And so we began to, a book that was very uh, informative in my life in 1973, while I was teaching at Loyal Blakefield, was Liberation Theology uh, by Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, That was a real change moment in my life. I'd already been doing a lot of things in justice. I was um, very involved with uh, the African Americans at St. Joe's Prep School and also at Loyola Blakefield. I established uh, uh, black student uh, unions at both of those schools and um, uh, trying to bring great justice within our schools to the African Americans who were small in number and whose voices were not being heard. Um, So um, and I was working uh, also in the peace movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I read Gustavo Gutierrez's book, and uh, to me it gave me a whole new framework to understand um, this, the gospel of justice, the gospel for the poor. So uh, I made a request and I entered and went on in 1974, the first uh, movement of the American Jesuits going into Latin America. We went to five different countries in eight weeks. Um, I went to Mexico. Um, it was called Horizons for Justice. It was a great program. And uh, so I spent my eight weeks there and came back to Chicago. And for, with 30 of us, we did a uh, three to four day deliberation on the impact of living and working among poor side by side with Jesuits of Latin America. And uh, this was so profound in my life that in September, I spoke to our provincial father, Panuska. Uh, I said, I really want to leave uh, education. I really want to uh, enter and work directly with the poor. I'd like to be sent to a parish like the Church of the Jesu or a Church of St. Aloysius Gonzaga, working with black people who are very poor. And uh, I made that request. To my surprise, 
the request was turned down uh-huh. and he said, no, you're going to come and work directly with me and your work will be in social ministries. You will help me and help the province uh, and the men who are already working among the poor. You'll be uh, my bridge to them and their bridge to me. And uh, also the spokesperson advocate uh, for the poor in terms of uh, uh, implications of uh, the changes that we need to go through as a province, as the Maryland province. So I did that for four years. And How did you balance that spiritually? You had this, this great desire to kind of, be, you know, be have more direct direct service, right? And then you, you've kind of acquired a few additional layers between you and, and, and those you wish to work alongside. How, how did you make sense of that? And, yeah. and Yes, it was very challenging for me because um, I didn't see myself as an administrator. And here I was being thrust into administration. Right. Um, but what was gratifying for me personally and helped me to adjust and uh, make the transition spiritually was working with Jesuits who actually were on the front lines. People who were working in prison, people who were working directly for the poor. Uh, for instance, Harms McKenna, the famous Jesuit of Washington, with his uh, center uh, right there at St. Aloysius uh, next to Gonzaga College High School. Um, and Bill Perkins working here at St. Ignatius, uh, uh, a street Jesuit uh, who worked in overalls, literally, and uh, uh, was working with African-American poor people who were street and homeless people uh, from 6 a.m. till 3 p.m. every day. To work with those kinds of people and many other Jesuits uh, in North Carolina up through Philadelphia, that was a, a gratifying and a very consoling experience for me. So, yes, I was in administration, but I also was going out visiting these men and seeing what they were doing and also had an opportunity to meet some of the people that they were working with and working for, you know, getting a sense, okay, I can at least walk with the poor by being a companion, uh, accompanying our Jesuits who are doing this directly day by day and doing it so beautifully and so marvelously, yeah. It's, it's always challenging, I think, to um, to get the desk job, right? But but so often the desk mm-hmm. job is is, you know, plays a key role in empowering and enabling others to, to, to do the good work. And um, yeah, this is true. From someone who has, has worked a number of desk jobs, uh, I, yeah, I, I can appreciate identify, that. Yeah. Identify with that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, but, but, but then, you know, I know you, you've spent time in, in Africa and you've, and you've certainly spent a good deal of time in, in Baltimore um, working directly with, with, yeah. with communities. Can you um, talk a little bit about those experiences? Yeah, well, my life in uh, Baltimore continued on through, as I mentioned a moment ago, with three provincials. Um, um, and what happened is under the second provincial, Joe Whalen, who's now dead, um, he was a classmate of mine, a great man, terrific Jesuit, profoundly spiritual. Uh, Joe asked me not only to continue working in social ministries, but uh, when Father Leo Mary stepped down as the uh, provincial assistant for pastoral ministries, Joe asked, would I take that on? So now in my administration, moved from working with maybe 30 or 40 Jesuits in social ministries to working with actually 215 Jesuits. A large core of our um, province was engaged in 22 or more parishes from uh, uh, Philadelphia all the way down North Carolina out to West Virginia and and also uh, hospitals, uh, retreat houses, uh, plus all the social ministry projects. So I was on the road a great deal. And that work went on from uh, 1979 until 1984. Uh, Jim, Father Jim Devereaux was the last provincial I worked for. And um, 
And then he said, you know, you've been working almost now 10 years as an administrator. Why don't you take a sabbatical? And so I took a sabbatical and went up to Toronto and did some more theological studies for a year, which was fabulous, uh, uh, just to be able to step back and once more go into the classroom and just uh, uh, be able to read a lot of uh, what was happening in the church and beyond the church in terms of, particularly around justice issues, was very gratifying for me. And uh, it was during that time I did a 40-day retreat again, and uh, I then told the provincial Father Devereux that I would like to be, uh, again, sent to a poor parish. Uh, And uh, he said to me, ah, but I have a need for you to go to Old St. Joe's, Philadelphia. And uh, I was kind of taken aback. It was a great struggle because Old St. Joe's is in a very upscale part of Philadelphia. <laughs> it was not the Jesu, which is in North uh, Philadelphia, a very poor area, nor is it St. Aloysius Gonzaga. In the, at that time, in uh, Gonzaga in, uh, was located, St. Aloysius Gonzaga Church was located in the poor part of uh, uh, Washington, D.C. But obedience is obedience, and I went. And uh, within one week while I was there, uh, I went out to, to the mailbox, and there was a man sleeping on the street right by the mailbox. And I was absolutely taken aback. I didn't think in uh, upscale Philadelphia there'd be someone sleeping on the street. I came back in and I talked to my assistant, Father Jim Casciotti, and said, Jim, uh, there's someone sleeping on the street out there. I can't believe it. And he said, oh yeah, there are people in this part of this Philadelphia that do sleep on the street. I said, we should do something about that. So lo and behold, there were some, uh, several other Jesuits and lay people who were uh, working on a project uh, which would be every night taking food, blankets, and uh, their presents to people living in the federal parks in, uh, in this upscale part of Philadelphia. So they came and asked me, can we do this? And I said, absolutely, I'm with you. So in January of 19, uh, I have to stop and think, it was 1986, uh, we launched uh, 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 walk and care for the poor and um, we did it every single night and that went on for years and years and out of that I decided let's open also a soup kitchen at Philadelphia it was unheard of we're going to open a soup kitchen in upscale Philadelphia so we did we opened a soup kitchen uh, at noontime and then I got uh, some nurses and doctors also to come uh, a couple of times a week to um, look at the situation of these people who are coming in from the streets um, and being fed at noontime, besides nighttime, our, our night walk. Uh, and so here I was uh, being given the gift of uh, doing at upscale uh, Philadelphia Parish uh, work directly for the poor, meeting them, helping them, assisting them, and bringing others to do the same. Mm-hmm. So uh, God works in amazing ways. So that actually when I uh, was there, I asked uh, also, if I could go to Africa. And uh, Jim Devereux says, no, you can't. So he eventually allowed me to go for a summer of 1987. Uh, I went over and spent six weeks in Africa and was so profoundly moved by... In Nigeria, right? In Nigeria, yeah. So profoundly moved by that. When I came home, I, I really asked him, I said, I really would like to go and live and work permanently in, in Africa, in Nigeria with the New York Jesuits. And in the meantime, 
he, uh, unbeknownst to myself, received a phone call from the New York Provincial asking if uh, I could be released to the New York Jesuits to work in Africa and become the pastor of St. Joseph's Parish in Benin City. Jim mm-hmm. called me in and said, what have you been doing behind my back? I said, I'm <laughs> So not much been, for obedience, right? <laughs> I said, nothing. I said, I just mentioned to them I would love to come, but I said, my provincial does not want me to come. I'm just happy to be able to come for the summer. And he said, well, let's do a discernment and see whether or not uh, uh, you should be sent to Africa uh, by way of the New York province. And uh, a year later, by golly, he said, you can go. And so we uh, had a big ceremony at Old St. Joe's Church in October 1989, and I uh, flew off to Africa with the intent of being there actually forever. Um, However, uh, I have a heart condition, and that began to be a problem Mm -hmm. in Africa. And one of the Jesuits there, a young Jesuit who was a medical doctor, he said, you really can't stay here. There's there's nothing here. Uh, The hospitals, uh, the medical world can't, can't really help you with and it's not good for you to be here. So I pondered that issue and uh, struggled with the issue for about almost uh, 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 a year and a half. And then finally, the situation was becoming a, a difficulty, a challenge for me. And so um, I formed the local superior, uh, Peter Schneller, uh, and uh, came back home to talk with my own provincial, Father Ed Glynn. And, uh, Things then took on a big change. But before coming back, and this is where, again, the schools come into play here. Right. Um, I mentioned to Peter Schneller when I first arrived in Africa that I began to read through the notes over a span of almost uh, 15, 20 years of the Jesuits working in Nigeria. They always talked about starting a school, but no school ever got started. So I asked him about that, and I said, you know, we have these young Jesuits, and they're so talented, Nigerian Jesuits, and we've worked in other schools, uh, universities and other uh, Catholic schools, but we don't have our own school. And he said, be my guest, uh, <laughs> see what you can do. So I set up a steering committee and uh, we had a couple of Jesuits on the steering committee. I chaired it and chaired it for probably about uh, 12 or 13 months and had a lot of wonderful lay people on it. And we began to really seriously plot and plan whether it was feasible to start a Jesuit school. Uh, so that before I left, things were well underway in terms of uh, the discussions. And uh, uh, Jerry Amen, a Jesuit from New York, who still is in uh, Africa, as a matter of fact, he took over. He chaired it after I left. And, um, and by 1995, by golly, they opened uh, Loyola Jesuit College in Abuja, which is the federal capital of Nigeria. Right, and right. it's obvious, well, they tell me it's the most... Uh, uh, prominent and uh, prestigious secondary school in uh, in uh, in Nigeria. Wow. It's really an fir- outstanding, first-rate school. And of course, the Jesuits have now opened uh, another school in. Uh, uh, it's called um, Jesuit Peace College in Port Harcourt, and they've got another school in also um, Abuja. I'm sorry, not Abuja, uh, Lagos. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Was that the first school you had a hand in in starting? Because I know you've started a number of schools at all levels in Baltimore. Yeah. Was that your first, your first go at it? Yeah, it was my first go at starting a school. And um, uh, as I say, the, the reception uh, was very positive. People were very enthusiastic in Nigeria about starting the Jesuit school. It took a while to get it underway. Uh, we began plotting and planning 
in the autumn of 1989, and it opened in 1995. Um, so, but I came back from Africa, and uh, Ed Glenn, the provincial, told me that, uh, look, um, the situation is you're not going to go back to Africa. You're going to stay here in the States at least for a year. And therefore, while you're here for a year, I want you to go down and take a look at St. Ignatius in Baltimore, down on Calvert Street. And, where we um, now sit. We're sitting right here, right, <laughs> uh, at St. Ignatius. So, um, St. Ignatius was not, was not unfamiliar to me because I actually had lived at St. Ignatius for a while when I was an assistant provincial. And, uh, and I used to preach a little bit at the church under Father John Henry, who was the pastor. So, um, I came down and um, in September and was... Uh, installed as pastor in the autumn of 1991 and looking around the parish was almost um, non-existent in fact one of the things that father glenn had said to me uh, people are telling me we should close the parish and uh, so my first two masses uh, one on saturday afternoon the vigil mass and the sunday morning mass the combination of those two masses 167 people whereas my first mass in nigeria Every Sunday morning was at 6 a.m. with 2,000 Nigerians. Wow. (laughs) So I said to myself, what am I doing here? So, um, but obedience said, you're here and you look around and see whether or not we should keep this parish or we should close it. So I said, well, if we're going to keep it, we need to do some ministry work. And um, so uh, we did have the wonderful outreach to the poor, which Father Bill Perkins had founded way back in the 1970s, and which I was very familiar with and very much involved with when I was living here at St. Ignatius. And, uh, but what we didn't have uh, is a school that would serve the poor. And so um, I knew that in Baltimore City, um, the underserved people and population are still, and were at that time, African Americans and their families. And so I had been very involved um, with um, uh, Jesuits who also had been working at uh, Nativity in New York City. And mm-hmm. Nativity School was the first of the uh, long number of Nativity Schools founded uh, initially by the New York Province Jesuits in 1971. So I was familiar with that model, and I said, I wonder if we could start a Nativity School here. So I put a steering committee together in uh, November of 1991, and one of the people on that steering committee was Father Jerry McAndrews who was the president then of Loyola Blakefield. Hmm. And he said, we'll do whatever we can do to help you. So um, we did a feasibility study, and it lasted for almost uh, uh, not quite a year. And I submitted the feasibility study to Father Ed Glynn and said, can we start this Jesuit school? And he took it to the consultors, and the consultors agreed with him, yes, we should start the school. And he gave us a grant of $103,000, uh, spread over three years, and um, uh, we opened the school in August uh, 1993 with 20 boys. And now, fast forward, it's in its 26th year, and it's been highly successful, and its whole purpose and mission is to serve uh, the underserved mm. who are uh, from poor families in Baltimore City. Almost all are African Americans. We do have some Caucasian American and Hispanic Americans. But the majority, the vast majority of the boys are, uh, it's a middle school. It's five, six, seven, and eight, and they've all done extremely well. Most of them go to private schools on scholarships here in Baltimore and beyond. 
Georgetown Prep. They go up to the private schools uh, in New England, uh, the ones down in Virginia. So it's really been uh, a great success and it has created a great community among the boys who keep coming back to the school again and again, year after year after year. And now it has five of its own students, graduates, are teachers. It oh, has wow. two members of the Board of Trustees who are uh, uh, for, uh, former students. So it has a, a rich history now, and uh, it's really done extremely, extremely well. Yeah. So that's, that's Loyola Academy, right? That's St. Louis Loyola Academy for boys. And yeah. I know you had a hand in um, the Cristo Rey School here, right? Yeah. And as well as the, the preschool. So yeah. I wonder if, um, you know, you've, you've obviously you've, you've illustrated the impact of, of education on young people and, mm. um, and their families. I, you know, I, I wonder it, what keeps you kind of coming back to, because those are three, because Lil Academy is, is fifth through eight, right? Yep. Cristo Rey is a is is our a, high school. Is a high school, and then and the preschool, preschool obviously is, is two, two three, through five, two, yeah, through four. Two, three, four, yeah, yeah. And just finishing up our third year with the preschool. Yeah. So how, how do you, um, you keep coming back to, to keep, um, you know, putting in place more, uh, you know, places of education. Mm-hmm. Why? What, what, what propels you? What, what keeps you inspired? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing would be, um, my mother was an educator, so my mother always believed in the great value of education, and of course my mom and dad sacrificed for me to go to St. Peter's Prep School, and I felt that was a great education. And um, the fact also is that Jesuits have always been involved in education. Um, Ignatius never dreamed of opening schools when he founded the society in 1540, but by golly, by 1548, uh, the first Jesuit school was opened. Uh, and uh, thereafter, even before Ignatius died, there were probably almost 30 schools opened. Um, and it took off, as a matter of fact, over the centuries until the Jesuits suppressed. There were almost 800 Jesuit schools in the world at the time of the suppression um, in 1773. Um, so um, it's been part of our DNA from the time of Ignatius on. And... Uh, and of course, um, I think our schools have been rather, to say the least, uh, successful in helping people, um, particularly uh, when we opened schools here in this country. Uh, you know, Jesuits were being um, expelled from across Europe. Mm. Um, after they got restored, they were still being expelled from, from one country after another, from France, from Spain, from Portugal, from Germany. Um, so they came here and they established schools because uh, many of the immigrants, Catholic immigrants, were poor. And, uh, and of course, now we have uh, the Jesuit universities across the country, all these multiple Jesuit prep schools, 70 plus of them. And then more recently, starting in the 1990s, uh, the Chicago Jesuits started with the, the model of Christo Ray Jesuit. Right. And now there are 30 some of these schools across the country. And of course, the Nativity model started by the New York Jesuit in 71. There are 60 some of those schools across the country. And these schools, the Christa Ray School model and the Nativity model schools, these are schools, they're not all run by Jesuits, by the way, other religious communities have picked those models up also, are really addressed to really making a difference in the lives of the poor. Uh, those who don't have an opportunity for a rich education, a quality education, um, these schools are meant and addressed directly to them, to right. give them a helping hand to make a difference in their lives and in their families and in the future of those communities, yeah. So I wonder, um, kind of <coughs> seizing on that, I, I know certainly the schools that you founded you, you are in response to underserved communities. Excellent. But I think also um, Jesuit 
schools, prep schools and, and, and colleges mm -hmm. um, are at times uh, criticized for um, feeling elite, for feeling yeah. out of out of out of reach for, yeah. for a lot of folks. I know yeah. my own Jesuit education was, was quite expensive. So yeah. um, how do you how do you uh, balance those those two uh, needs to, to have a you know a high class high quality school with you know our, our mission to, to, to serve mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. who are, are at times left out. Yeah. Um, how do you how, yeah how do you approach that? Your well, I think we're giving first of all. I think our schools, the new schools, um, the Nativity type schools and the Christian Rangers are giving a quality education mm -hmm. in the tradition of the society, and um, all three of our schools in this city are connected to Loyola Blakefield. And Loyola University is, is Baltimore uh, unique in that in that sense? Um, I would say there's, there's, there's a lot of Jesuit education here mm -hmm. in the city. There is, there is. Um, Baltimore is unique in the sense that it has five Jesuit schools, um, and uh, actually a sixth one is is the, the our newest one, um, and maybe and we'll get into that maybe eventually is the possibly even of a seventh one, right? Uh, an elementary, elementary school. school. Loyola Elementary, but uh, uh, yeah, to have these schools interconnected and supporting one another is perhaps unique to the USA. I'm, I'm not sure. I've not investigated other cities, but we certainly uh, great at, uh, support each other. And uh, for instance, I'm on the boards of uh, uh, Christa Ray, the academy, and of course the new school, the preschool, uh, Loyola Elementary. Early Learning center, yeah. And I, I imagine that integration is really key because you wouldn't want to you know, inadvertently have you know a, one school for one population yes. and one school for another. You really need that integration exactly. so that everybody succeeds together, right? And exactly. how, how do you ensure that that happens? Well, what we do, uh, for instance, uh, the university is really uh, very supportive of what we're doing. Uh, number one, they provide uh, through their, um, uh, their special school of... Uh, uh, of education, where they take students who, in our school and the preschool, who are uh, uh, hearing and uh, um, speech, um, they need special therapy. Right. Uh, they work twice a week. They send down five uh, students from their from Loyola University to work with our students and uh, assist them. And they've been doing that from the time that we opened the school. And uh, they also now are providing. Um, by the good graces of uh, President uh, Lenane, they're giving the opportunity for our teachers to pursue a master's degree in education at Loyola University. This is oh, happening wow. also and has been happening for years at the Academy uh, and uh, also uh, it's now happening at Christa Ray Jesuit. So uh, Loyola Blakefield um, also collaborates uh, in uh, multiple ways with uh, uh, the Early Learning Center as well as the academy, and uh, uh, I know they welcome uh, our teachers. They welcome our students. Uh, so there's a real sense of fraternity, I think, among the uh, the schools. Uh, even though the schools that are the traditional Jesuit schools and have been here a long time, uh, since actually 1852, both the the university and uh, Loyal Blankfield, which were one time one school. Um, but they still see themselves part and parcel of what uh, uh, our three schools are trying to do for the, the people who are underserved in the city right. by making available programs and uh, personnel. 
to assist us in what we're trying to do in our mission. Yeah. Right. I wonder if you could share a little bit, um, some reflections on, on Baltimore as a city. And, and you've certainly been here you know, a long time. You've seen a lot of things happen um, and hopefully change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously education is, is key, right, for, for young people to, you know, to, yeah. to, to flourish, you know, no matter where you live. Um, what have you seen of the impact of the work in Baltimore um, over the last several years? What, where are we going? And I, Baltimore is, the problems here are, are not unique to Baltimore, right? So there's, there's things unique, to be learned. Bal- yeah, they're not unique to Baltimore, but Baltimore, in a certain sense, because it is a city that uh, uh, the vast population is um, struggling financially to survive. Um, our city is uh, 65-70% uh, African-American. Right. Um, and again, they are the people who are uh, least uh, in mind when it comes to uh, jobs, housing, uh, uh, medicine, uh, and so forth. They are struggling. And so that's why, of course, I mentioned a moment ago, we are trying to serve the underserved. Um, and that's going to be basically the African-American community, also the Hispanic-American community. Um, the city of Baltimore um, was... At one time, you know, a city of almost a million people. Mm-hmm. It's now a city of just over 600,000. Um, it's lost all its in- key industries, basically, um, and has fled the city. So um, it's not a major force in the economy of the USA. Um, so people are struggling to find jobs, and uh, uh, there's uh, a constant struggle among, uh, in the neighborhoods. You know, drugs are a key element now in our city and that's fostering a lot of crime a lot of concern a lot of fear in the city and so the neighborhoods uh, that we're particularly addressing ourselves to east and west baltimore um, these are uh, difficult areas of our city uh, where housing and uh, families and uh, and joblessness uh, prevail right of course, but I would say, right, the educational institutions are, 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 are beacons of, of hope. Just, That's you know, a few beacons exactly, of hope. There are, exactly. there are certainly many um, signs of hope in our, in our city. And I wonder, is there a sense, um, I, obviously you're not in, you know, in the day-to-day in the classroom, but is there a sense that um, we're, we're equipping these young people with, with skills to then go back into their communities and, um, and, and, and serve as, as teachers and, and, and leaders. Is that, a, is that a priority in the education work that, that's being undertaken here? It is, as a matter of fact, that we try to inspire our students to think of Baltimore. Don't think of leaving Baltimore, but rather think of, if you do leave Baltimore, for instance, to go on to higher education, think that you're doing it because you want to come back and make a difference and be a leader in the city. Right. So um, we're constantly, in all three schools, trying to promote a sense of, be responsible for your city. Um, be a future leader who um, develops your own skill set and your own hope to make a, a difference in your own lives by coming back and sharing what uh, has been done for you. You need to do this for others. So, so one last question. It kind of it pulls it all together, hopefully. But, but um, you, obviously, you, you, you've just said men and, and women, you know, with and for others. Mm-hmm. And, and I know, um, I know from your work and, and um, you know from what you've been able to accomplish. Uh, but also just from, from you know, your, your role as a pastor, a lot of it has been bringing people into the mission, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not doing all this single-handedly. No way. Um, a lot of what uh, you've been really successful at, you know, all the way to your desk jobs, to, to being pastor, to, to this work, is inspiring others to, um, 
to do their part, to, to contribute, to, to, to leverage their gifts and talents. How do you do that? What's the key to, to mobilizing others to believe in uh, and, 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 you know, and, and put their skin in the game for, for a mission like this? Well, I guess basically telling the story. Mm-hmm. What is the story? The story is the story of our city. We're a city that has uh, been blighted, a city of deep need. Uh, we have endless families who cannot provide education for their own children. Um, they're going to schools that are struggling. Can we make schools that indeed provide a typical Jesuit quality education? And uh, would you be willing to join in that mission and in that effort and support that uh, focus by uh, financially uh, coming, uh, not just financially, but also very much financially, to come to uh, be a part and parcel of that uh, mission? And again and again, people say, uh, we're with you. Yeah, we, yeah, we want to see this city uh, provide the kind of education that Jesuits traditionally have been able to give. And they're, of course, it's not just Jesuits, they're our colleagues, they're the ones who are part and parcel of what we're doing. Uh, but we believe that that can make a real difference in the lives of the future of the city and give our city uh, leaders that will uh, um, change our city and make it for the better. And so uh, uh, endlessly uh, over the years, starting with the academy, uh, when I began to tell the story and what we'd like to be able to do, people said, you can count me in. And uh, just as recently as yesterday, we had uh, uh, Giving Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was just amazing, the, uh, the, the money that came in for the preschool. Uh, awesome. We were astounded. Uh, well over $30,000. We never tried that before. We said, let's try this Giving Tuesday. And uh, uh, next thing you know, uh, this morning we wake up and say, the, uh, in fact, it was more than 30. Uh, we had two people who gave $10,000. Uh, wow. And then those were being matched. Uh, and we, it, we raised more, actually more than $40,000 and uh, by two matching gifts that were given by people who believe in who we are and what we're doing in That's the preschool. Amazing. So, um, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Mother Teresa, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, she was a great person in terms of uh, being able to tell her story. And people said, yeah, we believe in what you're doing. And uh, also Teresa of Avila, the great Teresa of Avila, she said, you know, God opens doors and windows. If it's for God, doors and windows will be open. And I, so I rarely get concerned about anything. I say, <laughs> it, we'll just try to do it and we'll tell the story. And Lord, if it's for you and for your glory and for the good of your people, which is the model of society, on majorum de gloriam et bonum animarum, uh, then that'll happen. If it's not for your glory, your greater glory, and not for the good of people, then it's not going to happen. So that's and that's that. That's right? the way I live. And uh, people say, okay, we'll we'll help you. We'll, we'll join you. Just yesterday, someone called me. He said, Father, you and I need to get together with another man. I just had lunch with him. He said, uh, we uh, we need to put together two million dollars. I think we can do this but I need to have you come to lunch with me and this other gentleman. And that was in terms of we're thinking about the elementary school. So uh, he said, but we need to sit down and talk turkey. And I said, yeah, that's great. Thank you for calling. (laughs) So the the process begins again. It starts (laughs) all over again. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Well, Father Waters, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your work and your insights. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your next school blossom. Thank you, Erica. By God's grace, we hope it will blossom. Yeah, indeed it will. Thank you so much.
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at, at @JesuitNews, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via Facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Music